Lord, these are challenging words this morning as we come to them as, Lord, you call us to search our hearts for the sin of partiality. And so today, Lord, we ask that in a special way you would, uh, you would cause us to open our lives to you, that you would use your word like a double-edged sword that can uh, part between things that are unnoticed. Lord, that can cut away in us what doesn't belong. Lord, that we might be consecrated to you, sanctified for you. Lord, enabled to be a body of people who live with undivided love, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get started and I jump into the content, uh, I was thinking about this subject of partiality. And one of the great sins in our culture of partiality historically has been the sin of racism. And recently during Black History Month, I've been reading a book called How to Heal Our Racial Divide by Derwin Gray. And before we jump into this topic where one aspect of partiality, we're going to look at all different ones. I just wanted to recommend you, if you're trying to get a good biblical grip on the biblical call for us to live as a united people in a diverse culture. That book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide by Derwin Gray, is an incredible biblical theology of unity. And I would, I would just commend it to you. It's, it's helped me so much to, uh, to root myself. There, there's a lot of advice about how we can heal our racial divide in our country and what has to happen. And, uh, and as we think about addressing racism in our communities, there's all kinds of advice uh, that you can find out in the world world, some that is helpful, some that is incredibly unhelpful, but this book is a biblically rooted, helpful guide to how Christians should set their hearts on living as a united people before God. And uh, I just want to commend that book to you, How to Heal Our Racial Divide by Derwin Gray. It's been a huge help to me. As we think about this subject, I was thinking uh, about partiality in general. I was thinking about that show, Britain's Got Talent. How many of you have ever seen Britain's Got Talent? Of course, we've got America's Got Talent. But, um, you know, maybe you remember Susan Boyle. Raise of hands. Let's get involved a little bit. Everything okay. We got some people who remember Susan Boyle. In 2009, she was a 47-year-old British woman who auditioned for Britain's Got Talent. It was classic television. You know, as she's presented to the viewer, she's a little awkward and nervous. You know, she's, uh, she comes out as sort of a, like a housemaid, uh, not strikingly gorgeous in her appearance, and, and she comes out real timid, and it's really fat. You know, the whole thing is designed for us to make a snap-quick judgment about her. And it's sort of setting us up, you know, for the drama of typical reality TV, Right? There's shots of the crowd rolling their eyes as she says she wants to be a professional singer. And, uh, you know, so you see shots of the crowd rolling their eyes, chuckling at the idea that this woman that they see could be a professional singer. Of course, Simon Cowell is a bit dismissive based on what he has seen. And then she begins to sing, I Dreamed a Dream from Les Mis. And it's shocking. And, 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 you know, by the power of the internet, she became an overnight sensation because of just how powerful and substantive her voice really was. 
You know, moments like this have spawned a whole phenomenon of clickbait, uh, you know, on the internet and social media of similar situations that appear to be boring or interesting or a person that doesn't seem like they could do anything terribly great and then we're shocked by some amazing skill they have or amazing ability and, and, and you know, it's just got that wait till you see what's really beneath your superficial judgments. These sort of situations play on one of the common characteristics of our sinful and fallen human nature. If you think about it, we often make superficial assessments of people that are dead wrong. I mean, can we acknowledge that today, that every one of us socially, we make superficial assessments of people that we come into contact with that that later we discover to have been dead wrong? One of the most famous accounts in the Old Testament, actually, is a story that reminds us that this is one of the primary ways that God is different than us. It's the story of King David. And it's a a story that teaches us that we look on the outward appearance, but God knows the heart. Maybe you remember the story, but if you haven't, this is what happens. Samuel the prophet has been sent to a man named Jesse, knowing that Samuel is to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel. And so what happens? Uh... They, they, they introduce the first son who's the oldest and the strongest and, and Jesse assumes he will be it and you know Samuel says no this isn't the one the Lord has chosen they go through and he runs through six sons and you know all the guys who have showed up for the party are done and, and Samuel says this isn't it there must be someone else and young David who isn't much to think about who just tends, tends the sheep you know, he says, go call this other son. And God says, that's, that's the one. And the, and the lesson that, that is there is that we look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart that there's something different about God than every one of us. Our snap superficial judgments often lead us astray from the real substance of other people, but God is different. God looks on the heart. God sees through surface, superficial things in our lives and sees all the way down to the substance of who we are and loves us right there and sees things you and I don't see. Maybe the best way to say it is that we judge superficially and God sees the substance. We lack the ability to see things for what they really are. God does not. Which brings us to the main idea of our passage this morning and the main idea of the sermon. And if you're taking notes, it'll be on the screen above. And it's this. It's that faith in Christ. If we have genuine faith in Christ, faith in Christ and partiality cannot be held together. Genuine faith in Christ and partiality cannot be held together. You'll have to drop one or the other if you're going to walk out of consistent faith in Christ in your life. And we see that as the main idea of what follows in verse number one. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we see this main idea in verse 1, and then verses 2 through 13 only serve to help us take the instruction in verse 1 more seriously. They're, they're about helping us dig into it, but the, the instruction for us is to show no partiality of any sort while we hold our faith in Jesus in the body of Christ. I mean, that seems incredibly important for us to consider. And he says that you will either have to drop the one or the other. Before we jump in then and talk about partiality as he lays it out here, let's think about what partiality is. What is this word he's using? The idea of partiality here is clarified by the word James uses, which literally means to receive the face of. It's sort of the look on the face of something and receive it as what's really, what really is. That's what the word really means. It's a Greek word that is associated with that old Hebrew idea that is in the story of King David. It is the exact same word as our English word superficial. Super on the surface, ficial, face. Yeah, a little bit of grammar lesson here this morning for you guys. Superficial means to receive the face of, to trust what we see in the appearance of something rather than patiently understanding to look at the substance. And, and so, uh, when we determine something superficially, we are making a determination without any depth and based only on the surface of something. So partiality is a word that's used to describe the sinful way in which we prefer the surface appearance of something rather than being like God who looks on the heart. And so he says that we are to show no partiality in the church. No partiality in our neighborhoods. We'll see that unpacked. But let's look at a few things he says. There's three things that I want us to really look at closely as we walk down, down through the rest of the verses that will help us take this seriously. Because maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm not, I'm not a person who's partial. I mean, the truth is, James is writing to a church that needed to hear this, and he, I, I, he's not writing to a problem that just existed in a particular time and place, but one that every one of us wrestle with on some level, to judge people on superficial appearance. Not just their looks, but things we can only tell on the surface. And so, the first thing we see here as he instructs the church about really taking this serious is that he wants us to understand that partiality undermines our kingdom identity in the church. We're going to see this in verses 2 through 8. He's really trying to show us in those verses. We'll read back through them again. He's trying to show us that partiality undermines our kingdom identity in the church. Jesus, when he came, he came preaching and teaching the kingdom of God as an entirely separate vision for life than what we see around us in everyday culture. So I got a different vision for you. He came preaching this kingdom of God that was radically different than the way people lived out the kingdoms of the world. So coming to the faith, coming to faith in Christ and becoming a Christian is about recognizing that the identity we have built in the world and the way we judge people's identities in the world has been based on superficial things that are not eternal, not substantive, and will not last. Things that are contrary often to God's 
priorities. So coming to Christ in faith means repenting of our sin. We believe the promise of Jesus that through the cross and resurrection, He has begun a new kingdom that will be fully realized at His second coming. In the meantime, the church is to practice this sort of kingdom culture that stands in contrast to the cultures that we find ourselves in in any time and place. And since every culture has a variety of different ways that it places value on people superficially, it means creating a contrast to those superficial judgments and partiality. There are all sorts of ways we have to reject partiality in order to embody as a group our true identity as kingdom people in Christ and to be able to proclaim that the things that matter most are our faith and our fundamental identity in Him, the fact that we have received mercy in Him and belong to His family. That is our calling, that we would be a place consecrated to God, set apart from our culture, and that we would embody a kingdom identity as we wait for the fullness of God. kingdom to be realized and to do that he says it's important that we show no partiality that partiality and superficial judgment are contrary to the substantive truth of God's kingdom that's the backdrop for the problem described in verses 2 through 7 But let's look at how he does it. James does this uh, by using a particular example of partiality. James gives an example of partiality in the church based on wealth or social class. He imagines a situation where a rich man and a poor man come into the same gathering of the church. If you look at verse 2 and 3 there, he's talking about, you know, two different people, two different situations of life come into the church. The wealthy person gets the attention of those participating is offered a good seat and shown a genuine sense of welcome. And the poor person, based on their dress, is left to find their own seat or even told to just sit on the floor. Verse 4 then takes that comparison and asks the question at the heart of the example, have you not made distinctions about yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He takes that example of the different types of treatment that have created a distinction that God himself does not recognize, that isn't a spiritually substantive distinction. And he says, by making that distinction, you have become judges with your evil thoughts. Partiality causes James to ask this question. Have you? made distinctions about yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. I think of lots of different ways. At the core, the evil thought here is that the rich man is more valuable to the church than the poor man. That's the evil thought James is concerned about. That when it, somehow, when it comes to the kingdom of God, And the church's genuine mission in Christ, they've determined that this wealthy man would be more valuable to have in their midst than the poor man that came in. And he says, that's evil. Well, the church needs money to get work done. We need that wealthy man's influence in the community. I could use some friends like that. 
James calls this evil because it is godless and contrary to the real truth. It's a surface level, superficial of understanding of what the church really needs. You know the church needs none of that. What the church needs is to see their utter dependence on the Spirit of God to produce spiritual work and to care about that substance being worked into every heart and worked out in their lives. To be a place where we actually see through the superficial things that often people judge and we welcome into our midst the riches of God's kingdom through the Spirit of God that has been placed in people. And we show no partiality. The church is a place that needs a deep, spiritually rooted trust in Jesus Christ and the promises of His kingdom, and that's all. Listen, if you're not convinced deep down that what you need and what the church needs is a deep-rooted spiritual confidence in Jesus Christ and we don't need money and we don't need a, a new building or more things, that what we need is to be breathed on by the power of God, to believe the gospel that He's given it to us and let it change us from the inside out. If you don't believe that's what this church needs, you have missed the point of the gospel. So in verses 5 through 7 then, James, what he does is, he argues if that we had our heads on straight and listened closely to Jesus, we would have remembered two things. That he just kind of references as, as observable reality in their context. He says, you would have remembered that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. Now why does he say that? He says it because Jesus, in the Beatitudes in Luke 6, says specifically, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In some special way that Jesus doesn't go into details, he says that, that, that there's, there's a possession of the kingdom of heaven that allows every person, no matter their sense of wealth in this world, to receive and experience the riches of God. They're inheritors, genuine inheritors in God's kingdom. And he intends in this passage, if you notice, to indicate that more people in the position of poor have rejoiced in receiving that inheritance than those who are wealthy. Jesus goes so far as to say that those who are wealthy, it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle, a very small thing, than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that the only way that happens is if God spiritually breaks into the life of those who are wealthy and shows them their real poverty. But the poor sort of already know it. <laughs> and more often are open-hearted and ready to see through the surface to the substance. And perhaps in a church in one of the 12 richest counties in the country, in the wealthiest country in the world, might need to take note that we would be in danger of superficiality when it comes to this very topic as well. He goes on to say another thing, the wealthy are more likely to oppress and take advantage of you. <laughs> He said, James is continuing to undermine the initial reaction to welcome in the wealthy man in some special way by making an observation about reality that says the wealthy are more likely to use their wealth and power to oppress and take advantage of you. This was happening in, these, in this context. And he shows it to them. 
So what is James' point in this example? So this is one example, right? He uses this particular example. What is James' point in this example? Well, his point is that we are led away from fulfilling our kingdom identity, which is a calling to love one another, when we make distinctions based on superficial things in the church rather than valuing our common identity in being saved by faith in Jesus Christ and filled with the Spirit of God and belonging to the same family. When we reject that for partiality, we are all impoverished. Now James uses this example of wealth here, as I've shown us. But the big, con- the big concern he has is partiality of any kind. That was just an illustration of, of what was going on. He's concerned about any partiality, making distinctions in how we treat one another based on things that have nothing to do with spiritual substance. And we would be foolish to think that James is addressing something here that was only a problem among his first century churches. Our culture, our churches, and our individual lives are full of opportunities for us to exercise sinful partiality. We're exercising this sinful partiality in the church in a, in a number of ways. You can, you can think about it and observe it. Here's some of the dangers we might be tempted to. We are tempted to show partiality to people, of course, as we've seen with, with high wealth or social class. We've already explored that one through James' example, but we would be foolish not to recognize the danger here in our midst. This is about how we respond to someone's value when they come into the life of the church. Who gets invited over? Who joins us around our table? Who do we draw into our life group? Who do we build deep friendships with? So one way is wealth and social class. We also are tempted to show partiality to people of a certain age. You know, there are entire churches that are built on going after a particular demographic. And they say, this is the demographic we want to reach. Now, because we care and are sensitive to the military community, I thought I'd take a little bit of a side, because you might hear this and go, do we show partiality as a church that has a mission to the military community? Are we intending and purposefully showing partiality? It's certainly not our intention. It's appropriate at times to look for people who are not being served by the general things that are going on around and make sure they know that they have a place where they'll particularly get served. But we don't, we don't have any belief that military personnel or family members are of more spiritual substance and better for our body than anything else. We just want to make sure that there's a place in our community where members of the military and their families who move from place to place can know that they can find a home in the body of Christ that is going to love them and preach the gospel, that's going to support them. That's different than what we're talking about in terms of partiality. But there are entire churches that build them. That's also why in the Praetorian Project, I'm sort of on a rant, but... It's also why in the Praetorian Project, when we express our mission, we say we plant churches in military communities. Because we exist for the community. Sometimes military service members need the strength of people in the community to walk through difficult days. And sometimes communities need the service and love of military service members who come in and bring renewal with their vibrancy, sense of urgency, whatever gifts God has given them as they move around. And our church has experienced both of those things. And because of that, we're, we're a better church because we've said we want to make sure that we make a place for this whole community to gather around Christ. But you know, there's a partiality in churches around age. 
You know, churches that want to be a young church, churches that want to be a mature church, or even within churches, isn't it the case that we often see a sort of partiality? Oftentimes in church, people of different ages and life stages prefer to always be separate and spend time together while neglecting building relationships with people in different stations of life. That is a real thing. I don't want to be in a life group with older people. I can't relate to their problems. I hear that? Or I don't want to be in a life group with young families. I'm out of that stage. The kids are just too wild. That's more likely in our scenario, right? Got a lot of kids. So when someone comes into the church, we don't try and connect with them or serve them or see them as valuable. We're tempted to show partiality to people of a certain age. We're also tempted to show partiality to people based on education. It's easy to use level of education as a distinguishing fact in who we like to hang out with, but education doesn't equal maturity and spiritual depth. We're, we're tempted in our very diverse nation, context of diverse nationalities to, to show partiality based on nationality. But we're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the church of Americans. We belong to him when we gather on Sunday. We recognize that our chief identity is that we're a global people spread across the world, gathering in pockets like this because we have a Jesus who's calling people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue around his throne for that glorious day when they will realize that he's the true king and Lord who sees through to the substance of the people he created. That's who we are. We're tempted to show partiality to people of similar race or ethnicity. On the surface, we would proclaim racial equality and take the position that God has created all mankind in His image and bless the world with diverse cultures and expressions of life for His glory. But in practice, we often give subtle preference in the way we welcome one another based on similarity of race or ethnicity. In this less obvious sense, not proclaimed, more incipient, just acted out beneath the service. This less obvious sense of partiality is more dangerous in many ways because we can convince ourselves it's really not there. But we must examine our lives and the evidence of our daily operations to really see if we exercise ungodly partiality by not opposing our natural impulse to just connect with and serve people who are most similar to us. Show no partiality while holding the faith in Jesus Christ. Letting these sorts of partiality dominate our church cultures undermines our kingdom identity and impoverishes us spiritually. We need to keep that in mind. That's the first thing James shows us about partiality. The second thing he shows us is that partiality incriminates us as offenders of the royal law. Beginning in verse 8, he turns our attention to this law he describes as the royal law. The point of verse 8 through 11 is that we let partiality affect the way we treat those around us. If we do that, we are failing to live in accordance with the, the horizontal portion of what Jesus called the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was asked what is the great commandment, he says it's to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. 
He put a second one there right up against it because as we think about loving God in the vertical, we're called to also not take away from the great commandment that, that our spirituality is really expressed in how we love one another as ourselves. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. In the text, let's follow the argument. Begin in verse 8. James joins with Jesus in reinforcing that the moral law of God can be rightly summarized in the instruction to love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus talked about the Old Testament law, he says, let me sum it all up for you and get to the core of it in terms of how you treat one another. The principle is love your neighbor as yourself. We do well to carefully follow that in the ways that we treat one another. So in this particular instance of partiality, here's how this works. How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Or what does that have to do with partiality? Here's how it works. None of us here want to be judged by the thousands of superficial things people can conclude about us when they initially meet us. There's not one person here who comes into our worship service and, I, and says, well, I hope people make quick conclusions about me that determine whether they want to connect with me and get to know me. None of us want that. We want people to lean in, don't we? Lean into getting to really know us, to not use their preconceived notions to put us in a particular box that they think explains who we are or what we care most about in life. That's what we want. No matter what's going on in our background, no matter where we've come from, no matter who we are, we want that. We want to be known for our substance and not boxed up by people's superficial judgments. That's how we want to be treated. We want to be known and understood. We want to be loved. Not characterized by these cultural boxes and put in our place. And so the great commandment says we owe that type of treatment to others. Love your neighbor as yourself means removing any treatment contrary to that from the way that we relate to one another. It's a pretty simple idea, isn't it? But powerful when we stop and think about what we really want. Now look at verse 9 and and what that means for the subject of partiality. He says, then, on that basis, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted as transgressors of the law. It's not a small problem, he says. We're committing sin when we show partiality, and we're transgressing the clear heart of God's law. It's a failure at the heart of the most important aspect of God's instruction about how we are to treat one another. Then in verse 10, after saying that, he's making the case that although there are different flavors of breaking the commandment, that major commandment, the most important commandment for how we relate to one another, he says there may be different flavors of it, but they're all breaking that particularly important commandment, Jesus said, is valuable. Rejecting God's most important law and failing to love our neighbor is the problem that partiality brings into our life. Murderers fail to love their neighbor, he says. Adulterers fail to love their neighbors. 
if you, if you keep the law and don't murder, but you commit adultery, you're still deeply offending the law. Now, if we put that into our own social context, if you commit the sin of murder, you'll get arrested for breaking the law. And if you commit the sin of perjury, the, if you illegally perjure yourself, you might not be a murderer, but you've broken the law. Here, though, he says something a little bit deeper. He says the law is love your neighbor as yourself. And we have different versions of that. So the murderer is breaking this law. The adulterer is breaking this law. And the one who shows partiality and fails to love their neighbors is breaking this law. If this is us, when we show partiality, we are tossing God's law aside in this way. We have rejected God and are guilty. It doesn't matter at which point of the law you are guilty, you have broken the same law. Now, all that sounds bad enough. You know, like, so now before God, our sins of partiality, which cause us not to love our neighbors, is a deep offense and make us guilty before God. It breaks our sense of fellowship with Him. And that sounds bad enough, but I want to point out one more thing James does as he writes to this particular church, and as we hear it as a church in our own setting, he calls this commandment we are breaking by a new name. He calls it the royal law. Did you notice that in, the, in verse 8? He says that if you really fulfilled the royal law according to Scripture, and then he names this law that Jesus talked a lot about, the Old Testament emphasizes, and all of that. He calls it the royal law. So the reason is really based in John chapter 13. In John 13, Jesus, right before he dies, he wants to emphasize to his disciples how important this law, love your neighbor as yourself, really is to him. This instruction matters to him. This, this not showing partiality is important to Jesus. And so he wants to show them what he means. And so right before he dies, he gathers his disciples together in the upper room and he washes all their feet like he is a servant and they are the ones of great value. So when Jesus comes into the church, Jesus comes in as a servant. Jesus comes in as the one who gets on the floor and then serves and loves his neighbor. He washes all their feet. And then he takes this command to love and he says to them, Now, love one another as I have loved you. That is totally the opposite of partiality where we see ourselves as superior and we call others the servant. They're not valuable to us. Jesus flips it on the end and he says, no, I am the servant and because I've been your servant, you can't get any further in your spiritual life than the master. So you will always be the servant of the people to whom you belong. And that'll put you in the place to avoid partiality because you are there to serve. To raise the value of others rather than raise your own value. And so we see this. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And he goes to the cross right after that and counts his love, counts his life of no value to him itself in exchange for restoring the value that sin has robbed from every one of us. To show partiality in the face of Jesus' teaching about this law 
is to reject the king of the kingdom altogether and to fail the royal law. That's what James is saying. So we got, we've seen two things. You know, so far it undermines our kingdom identity in, in, in a biblical community like a church. We've seen that it makes us lawbreakers. It shows that we have offended the depths of God's most important law when we do this. And then the third thing that we see in this passage is partiality prepares us to hear the gospel, to really hear the good news of Jesus. Verse 12 and 13 show us that. It's the last thing we'll look at, so let's look with attention and closeness. He says in verse 12 again, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is James doing there? So James, through this lens of the sin of partiality, has prepared us to hear the gospel with power and clarity. So let me try to, to help make it clear. Here is the gospel for us to hear, brothers and sisters. Listen, there is hope for all kinds of sinners. Every type of sinner there's hope for. Murderers, adulterers, and those who have failed to love their neighbor because of sinful partiality. If you've harbored partiality of any sort and broken God's commandment, there's another important law that can grant you liberty or freedom from that sin. It can make you free from the guilt of that sin that you've incurred before God. It's the law of the substitute sacrifice that brings liberty. That's what he's talking about here when he references liberty. It brings freedom. There's freedom from the guiltiness that comes from being People of partiality. In the Old Testament law, it was pictured by the confession of your sin over a spotless lamb that would be sacrificed before God and received by Him as an atoning sacrifice for your sin, and then you were free of that guilt before God and able to worship in His presence and among His people. But that sin had to be confessed and dealt with for you to really belong among the people. Pictured then in the Old Testament, we have this image but this was a picture, really, of what Christ came to do for us all the way to the heart. The true Lamb of God would come and do for those who confess their sin and put their faith in Him what the, the Lamb only symbolized in the Old Testament. We are freed from our sin when we own it as sin. The sin of partiality. We confess it to God and, and we count our sin as laid on Christ when He went to the cross for us and our salvation. Because of that death on the cross, you and I do not have to pay for our sin before God, but can be freed. We can be given liberty from its burden and walk in a new way of life. So that means knowing this, we should flee from all forms of partiality as those who have been offered liberty from the burden of our sin by the costly sacrifice and service of Jesus. Or as James puts it here, speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. If you've been offered this sort of freedom, you will be measured by whether you use that freedom to flee from sinful partiality and learn to love your neighbor, or whether you clung to that partiality and really rejected Jesus' sacrifice. That's what James is saying. We wouldn't want to be found claiming to be Christians saved by faith in Jesus Christ and living in the ongoing sin of partiality. 
That's what James is saying. But this gospel message, he says, comes with a warning. You see, partiality is a merciless, unfair judgment that must be repented of for us to claim faith in Christ. It's a merciless kind of judgment that requires repentance before God. James says that if we do not rid ourselves of this sin of partiality, judging people on the surface and treating them accordingly, if we don't rid ourselves of it, we should consider ourselves in danger of the judgment of God. Because the gospel of Jesus, who has shown us mercy demands that we no longer look on the surface of appearances and we care about the substance of people and we really love them where they're at because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He found us as people who were prejudiced and racist and ageist and sexist and all kinds of weird ways in which we look at everybody around us, compare our wealth to theirs, and he found us that way and he says, that is not what makes you valuable. Being superior in any of those categories will not get you into the kingdom of heaven, but only as you kneel at the, the foot of the cross, at the level ground of the cross, and say, God, I know I don't deserve any of this. There's nothing I can do to merit your saving work, your hope, your renewed life, but God, I receive it as a poor sinner. When you've received that, we must part with partiality or we must part with the gospel. There really are no two ways about it. You see, refusing to do so in James' words is refusing the mercy of God himself over our lives. You see, the mercy of the cross of Jesus triumphs over judgment. It's the standard. Jesus' death on the cross is the standard by which all of us will be measured. Even as Jesus experienced unfair judgment on the cross, nothing was more a failure of judgment than the Lord of glory crucified on a cross as a common criminal. There's been no un more unfair, prejudiced, mis guided understanding of the substance than Jesus crucified like a criminal between thieves. But Jesus did that so that he could save us from our partiality and our lack of love for one another and bring us into a renewed kingdom where we would be willing to part with all partiality because his mercy triumphed over the judgment that we truly deserve. So even as Jesus experienced unfair judgment on the cross, he was establishing by his death the offer of mercy to all those who would repent from their unloving partiality. He will put down, listen, all oppressive judgments based in partiality until the day when only those who receive his mercy, who have asked for genuine mercy, find themselves at home in his kingdom. So let's respond to him this morning. Some ways you may need to respond as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, to recognize our kingdom identity in Christ. Listen, maybe today you need to ask the Lord to search your heart for ways you've exercised partiality. 
If you're a Christian, confess your sin to God. Prepare to take action in ways that, that have been contrary to the patterns of your past. Whatever they may be, ask the Lord to search your heart for, for ways that you may have just sheltered and harbored the remnants of the partiality of our old sin nature. That's the first thing. The second thing is I, I want you to join me in building a kingdom culture here at Pillar Church. Anyone you might have normally leaned away from, lean into with gospel welcome and hospitality. That we would just sort of do the counterintuitive thing to our nature. That, that those who we would say, oh, they're different than us. They've got a different thing going on. Any of the things that you would use to use partiality to separate you from someone and not think I'm going to engage that person, draw them into my life. Just resist those things and lean into anyone you've sensed is different around you in the body of Christ and receive the joy of discovering the treasure in the substance that God has put in every human being. That we would build a culture like that here at this church where whatever sense, when people come in, they wouldn't feel all sorts of competing partialities. They would feel the abundant love of a kingdom people who know Jesus' mercy in our own lives. Go out of your way to build relationships and depth of connection in ways that show you believe the gospel of grace. Lastly, you may need to respond this morning by turning to the Lord today and experiencing for the first time freedom from the burden and guilt of your sin. We have all failed to keep God's law at some point. We have all failed to love our neighbors. Failing to love our neighbor and exercising partiality may have been for you today a clear insight into your need for God's mercy and forgiveness and salvation because you truly haven't been drawn to love your neighbor as God has commanded to you. And today, if you're willing to repent of your your sinful life and bring it to Christ at the cross and receive his forgiveness. He will save you, forgive you, make you new and cleanse you of every sin as he makes you ready to rejoice in his coming eternal kingdom. And that invitation is for rich, for poor, for black, white, Latino, man, woman. Anyone who can hear it can come to the mercy of the cross and put off their sin and find that they have a family in the people of God. If you're not a part of that people, I want to invite you by faith to join it today as you express your faith in Christ for the first time, as you pray in your seat and call out to him. And I want to invite you to help us build that kind of kingdom culture here at Pillar Church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your love for us. We pray that in this consecrated moment to you as we prepare to receive the symbols of your broken body and the cup of your poured out blood that we would be reminded that only humbled sinners are received with grace at the cross. Lord, I pray that we would find our relationship with you to be our deepest joy and substance our eternal hope in you to be our greatest treasure. And through that, you'd fill us with abundant, impartial love for one another, that you might be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.